Welcome back to the Cyclist Magazine podcast. I'm your host, James Spender, and with me today, as ever, or not always as ever, but I do have the privilege this episode, is Emma Cole. Emma, you're looking, I'd say you're looking quite tanned, as if you've been somewhere. I know the weather in Britain's been quite nice, but you haven't got a British tan, you've got a foreign tan. Where have you been? Hello, James. I actually, luckily, I do have a foreign tan. I've just been in Albania. I got back yesterday, and I have to say, what a beautiful country. Wow. What are you doing? Just just holidays, fun and giggles, or are you cycling, or are you doing any kind of work? Uh, it was all fun, actually. Uh, obviously, work is also fun, but it was just me and three <laughs> friends. <laughs> me and three friends hanging out in Albania, uh, went to like a music festival for a bit, and it was just glorious. Music festivals on the beach, Boom. unbelievable. And the backdrop is these incredible mountains. I mean, yeah, it's utterly, utterly beautiful, the country, and really yummy food as well, and lovely people. So if you haven't been, highly recommend, and yeah, great time. This episode is brought to you by the Albanian <laughs> Tourist Board. Uh, great oh, yeah. backdrops, great beaches, great towns. I mean, this all sounds lovely, but it, to me, it also sounds dangerously like you are not doing training for cycling from London to Tunisia, because that sounds like the antithesis of training, having a few babies on a beach, dancing some tunes. Well, I always think you've got to have a table week, and that was my table week. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well, I mean, yeah, so I actually had to Tunisia on Sunday. So I had a great table week in Albania. Um, And now, yeah, knuckling back down, just sent my bike to get a nice little service. I've also got to apologise for my dodgy voice. I've been chatting a lot. (laughs) (laughs) And yeah, and then head off on Sunday. Boom. And what bicycle are you taking? Uh, Ribble Gravel TI Hero which uh-huh. is a delight. I absolutely love it. A delight. It looks, it looks lovely in the pictures, nice and shiny. But the question is, though, have you done that thing that you should never do and you've got a new set of running shoes before a marathon or have you been smashing out loads of miles on it? I have been smashing out a fair few miles. Um, I've had it for maybe like two months now, I think. Um, and actually with bank holiday weekends, that has been cracking for training. So every bank holiday, I've just gone and visited someone far away and done that as my training because I do all my training with my bags on as well that's the key that's what I did wrong another time that I went <laughs> away um and so I've been yeah learned from that mistake and yeah just pack at pretty much take, I take my tent and everything everywhere with me um which is quite funny and have you practiced pitching in the side like pitching up at the side of roads and sleeping in ditches is that because I feel like having spoken to long distance people a lot of it's to do with being able to sleep rough as opposed to being able to cycle as as much as rather, not as opposed to, but as much as being able to cycle all day. Yeah, I think so. Um, I actually haven't practiced that, partly because I wasn't initially planning on doing that because there are a fair few campsites on my route. And I've, I've actually booked my first campsite, which I'm quite excited about. Boom. It's very unlike me to be so planned, but um, here we go. Uh, yeah, so, but also I think it's very mental. You know, I think it's more like I quite, I visualise the finish line. I visualise the moment I get to here and see my friend. And that for me is like what will get me through the really tough times. And that's, I just, I, all I can see, I think about before I go to bed, I'm like, oh, the moment I get to Tunisia, I hold my bike up and I'm like, yeah. That's, <laughs> that's like so firmly ingrained in my head that I kind of think, yeah, sleep in a ditch, fine. Just every kind of hard moment, you're like, right, why am I doing this? What am I doing this for? And just reiterate it. You sound like somebody that's spoken to an awful lot of ultra-distance athletes and mental toughness coaches. I actually have. That is the beauty of this job is that I get to, you know, just absorb all this knowledge. And now I'm hopefully going to go and apply it. Um, We'll see how it goes. 
Well, hopefully by the end of this, how long is it going to take? How long are you going for? Three weeks? Yeah, well, less than three weeks. Okay, so at the end of less than three weeks, you'll have enough fodder for a book and then you can write that book, get that published. Bloomsbury or like Yellow Jumper Press or someone, they'll probably put it out there. Yellow Jersey, sorry, Yellow Jersey Press. And then we can get you back on the podcast as a guest. So it kind of writes itself. Yeah, watch this space. Fantastic. But speaking of guests, do tell me, who have you got lined up for us today? Uh, we've got the brilliant Lizzie Dignan. Um, I mean, with an absolutely sterling Palmeiras, a couple of highlights, you know, 2012 Olympic silver in the road race. She's the first ever like Paris-Roubaix women's winner in 2021. Absolutely iconic moment. Uh, and then she won the, she was the first woman to triple crown all the women's monument classics. So quite outstanding. She's just come back from having her second child. Um, and she's going to tell us all about, you know, her hopes and dreams for the season. And uh, yeah, just so listeners are aware, we did speak to Lizzie in a very busy cafe. So there is a bit of background noise, which we apologise for. But nonetheless, it is a brilliant interview. So yeah, let's welcome to the podcast, Lizzie Dagen. So Lizzie, welcome to the Cyclist Magazine podcast. I believe you're joining us from an incredibly swanky location. Whereabouts are you? <laughs> uh, I'm in the Holiday Inn in Brentwood, I think. Very, Very nice. nice. <laughs> one, one thing I'll say about Holiday Inn, it might not be up there with some amenities, but I always think the beds are really good. They're not bad. They're really you're not right. bad. You're right. No, I had a really good sleep last night. The first good sleep I've had in a while. So, uh, yeah, I'm happy to be here, honestly. <laughs> well, that's pretty important because tomorrow the Ride London Classic is kicking off, which you're riding in. So that, am I right in saying it will be the first race you'll have done on British soil since sometime in 2021? You are right, yeah. So the, the last race that I did here was the Women's Tour um, and that was kind of still during the post-pandemic season. So it was in October in 2021. Oh, epic. And how does it feel back to be on the road on British soil? How are you feeling about it? Really nice. Yeah. Um, I mean, I don't live in the UK, so I miss the UK a lot. It's just nice to be around British voices. And obviously, like the race itself is going to be pretty special because there's going to be British flags and British supporters. And I may be biased, but I think the British fans are pretty good. So how are you feeling kind of going into it? Obviously, for those listeners who, who may not know, you've um, this is your first season back after having a season out, having had your second child, Shay. So how's how's everything really? Like how how's the head? How's the legs? How's it feel to be be back racing? Pretty good, actually. Yeah, I mean, obviously, it's had its the last seven months have had their own challenges, <laughs> uh, but we're getting there as a family. You know, we're we're keeping two alive, and they're both happy and healthy, and family life is good, and and the balance with cycling is actually going better than I had hoped. Um, I've started racing in the Ardennes, and obviously that was a bit of a shock to the system, but. The Vuelta went well. And, I, you know, when you feel like your form is building, I was fit before, but I feel like I'm starting to feel a bit of form, which is exciting. And how does this return to racing compare to when you had your first child, Ola? Different, yeah. Um, I mean, the pregnancy with Ola was much easier. So return to fitness felt easier, but she was a challenging baby, let's say. Uh, and her brother, Shay, is a much easier baby. So they've they've been quite different in terms of, how I've managed the, the motherhood balance side physically it was a challenge this time around I put on a lot more weight with Shay so I, I mean I topped out at something like I think it was yeah 70 kilos by the end and um 
you know, back down to kind of race weight at 58 kilos. So it was, sorry, not 70, 77 kilos. I put on about 20 kilos. So it was, it was, it's been a tough kind of road back to fitness and it's had its own challenges, but um, I'm starting to feel the benefits of all the work now. Is it a kind of strange situation to find yourself in again, sitting opposite, you know, digitally opposite two journalists who are talking to you about having children and coming back into bike racing when humanity's been having children since humanity's ever been? And I think in cycling, you you are, I'd say you're, you know, you're close to being unique. There's not that many big public stories about riders having kids. But as you point out um, in a really great tr- uh, video, um, Treks Accessible Areas, you know, you've got teammates, you've got Balka Monoma who has three children and nobody sits down in an interview and says, hey, Balka, what's it like to be racing and have three kids at home? How does that sort of sit with you in the general kind of conversation about things? It's definitely weird. Yeah. <laughs> uh, because obviously starting a family is a very personal decision. It's not something that we did to change perceptions or break boundaries or any of that you know we just wanted to start a family and you know luckily enough to have done that and um but and I understand the phys- the, the reasons behind the questions about balancing motherhood and being a professional rider because physically I'm still in that postpartum period so there are interesting questions about how I've managed that and how that works but I think it is interesting to me that yeah as a father then nobody's ever asked well, you know, don't you miss your children when you leave them? You know, like I'm constantly asked that. And I think, well, none of your business, but yeah, obviously. <laughs> um, maybe that's just the defensiveness in me, but I do find that a bit of an odd part of it. Yeah, but I, I guess that's also part and parcel of it. And I'm happy to share that and happy to kind of be open about it because I think it's really important that we do see athletes as human beings and not just robots who are there to perform constantly. I think if you're interested in athletes and you're interested in all of their kind of parts of their life and parent parenthood is a balancing act, but for mothers and fathers, and it should be kind of an open conversation, I think, with fathers in the peloton as well. And something that I've spoken about before in terms of like maternity leave it's brilliant that I have maternity leave but as long as paternity leave isn't discussed in cycling there is no protection for a man right now if he decides to stay home rather than leave to a bike race and miss the birth of his child to me that's crazy and unbelievable that no man has ever said hang on a minute where's my paternity leave so as long as we're only talking about maternity leave then we're only discussing childcare as um, a priority of women rather than of parents. Do you feel that the landscape is changing at all? Is there a conversation about paternity or is it literally women and maternity? I don't think so. Um, I could be wrong, but I think it would be um, a great point for it to, to discuss. I mean, it's... Yeah. You definitely <laughs> I mean it's it's massive and like James I'm sure he won't mind me saying he's just come back from paternity leave and I feel like once you have to you know we were talking about paternity versus maternity and it's a massive massive difference and it then also does you know adds to the idea of society being like the woman has the main role in the, like looking after the children which again is problematic um but do you feel that have you found that other riders have come and said to you oh Lizzie like how did you find the returning to pregnancy is there a big conversation amongst riders? Yeah, I think so. 
it's definitely more than it used to be. I mean, um, it's great now to see, you know, my teammate Ellen Van Dyke is on maternity leave and um, I hope that it becomes more normalised. But, I mean, I haven't had the chance to sit down with Balka <laughs> and ask him about <laughs> what paternity leave he took. But uh, sure, on training camp this winter, I'll, I will be asking him, yeah. And how's it sort of worked with, you know, the kind of wide, the wider sport, in particular, I mean, ultimately your employers with Trek? Because I think a few years ago, there was a story that surfaced about uh, a few Nike athletes who had 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 come back from from pregnancy and been offered contracts at incredibly reduced, like something like 70% reduction in a contract for a track and field athlete, um, Alison Felix. And I wondered how that, you know, how that compares to the world of cycling, because as far as I've ever known it, cycling is very traditional. It's very male, and there's also sort of not a lot of money to go around, um, strangely, considering it's probably the most watched sport on the planet. Well, I'm incredibly fortunate to be a Trek Segafredo athlete, honestly, because that was one of the key things when I announced my pregnancy with my daughter, Orla, that they wanted to start a women's professional team, um, and they didn't negotiate with somebody who was starting at the bottom. They negotiated with me as somebody who had the palmaris that I did have. Um, and they showed me respect. And in return, I showed them respect. And it's been like that from the beginning. And, you know, they, they gave me full maternity cover and nothing but support. So um, they've paved the way, I think, particularly um, in women's cycling about how to handle maternity leave. Yeah, I mean, that's absolutely awesome. Obviously, you're from Otley uh, in Yorkshire, which is also near where Beryl Burton grew up. And I read that you referenced her saying, you know, she even cycled when she was pregnant. Was was Beryl an inspiration during your pregnancy? And is she still something now as you're coming back and, you know, returning to the road full speed? Well, interestingly enough, my grandma used to work with Beryl Burton. So they worked in the same school. And um, my grandma would recall the fact that Beryl used to cycle to work pregnant and how everyone thought it was so strange and blah, blah, blah. But I also remember that when I announced my pregnancy with Orla to my family, when, you know, when I told everyone I was pregnant, my grandma was one of the first people asking me when I would go back to cycling. It was never a question for her, like, will you retire? So I've been very lucky to be surrounded by men and women in my family that think it's totally normal for a mum to go back to work. So yeah, um, and I knew all about Beryl and, and riding to work, yeah. Has there ever been any part of you that thought you might end up on the rhubarb farm? <laughs> uh, no, thank goodness, no. Times have changed a little bit between my era and Beryl's. Uh, she, was, she was a much harder woman than I was, I can tell you that. It's interesting you say that, that longevity of career that someone like Beryl Burton um, had. She was racing, I think, probably across four decades. And for a lot of people won't realise, you know, one of the most decorated sports people this country's ever produced, let alone cyclists. And that is a career that isn't often replicated in the men's side. And I wonder if you, so for listeners who don't realise, you're married to Philip Dagan, who is ex-pro, ride for Sky, Radio Shack, AG2R, Cervelo Test Team, you know. You've got a partner who is a dec- you know, a highly acclaimed cyclist, but you have a longer career than he does. And you've managed to have two children within that. Is there a conversation between you and him about the kind of differences in physiology, perhaps between men and women, or what it is that allows you to, to have gone on for a much longer career? I don't know if you realize, but you're already in your 15th year and Philip retired after 13. So <laughs> you're doing something right. Did he? Yeah. Ah. 
this is I'm gonna make him listen to this no I mean we definitely we definitely do discuss it and um it's also interesting our careers and how they evolved and we we're always discussing like things things like talent or uh who worked harder or whatever or who's more talented and all these things come into it and um also the the, the climate that you're in like women's cycling um it, that you know it's no secret that it, it would have been less competitive to get a professional contract in women's cycling than it would have been for him you know it was fiercely competitive and that's why he stopped racing was because they couldn't get a contract for the following season so it wasn't his choice physiologically I think he would have been capable to race so there's oh that's a massive yeah that's a massive conversation <laughs> um and I don't think there's a clean answer to it yeah we we are we are very different athletes so uh physically and mentally yeah it's, it's quite interesting and what about um Orla and Shay are you going to get them into cycling is there any pressure or are you just letting them do their own thing Oh, yeah, let them do their own thing, obviously. I mean, it's interesting already, like, they're such different characters. Um, Orla is just non-stop and very, very active, and it's pretty clear that she's physically quite strong for her age. Um, but I would, I don't know how I'd feel about them getting into cycling. I'd be, I think I'd be nervous, to be honest. I can't imagine anything worse than watching your own child suffering in a bike race. I think that's, that's yeah, that's... um. An interesting kind of thought is is you've had such an immersive experience in cycling at every single level. Is it something that you would want for your children? Yeah, I have a I have a really kind of good perspective on just how lucky I am to be a professional athlete, to be a professional cyclist. So, um, I, I feel grateful actually to have seen Philip retire during my career because I can see that retirement isn't as cracked up as you think it's going to be the grass isn't greener like the real world is a hard place and um, I'm incredibly grateful that I make a living from my passion from riding my bike every day and I think if our children want to do the same then that's a brilliant way like I say it's a brilliant way to make a living if you can make a living from something that you're passionate about then um, you can't ask for more than that really. Yeah, that's very true. And I mean, talking about passion, obviously we've got the Tour de France Femme coming up, second year. Um, How are you feeling about riding it? Obviously you missed it last year because of your pregnancy, but you're going to be there on the start line. How are you feeling about it? Excited, yeah, I'm really pleased. Uh, As well, that's probably one of the decisions, one of the reasons that the decision to retire keeps getting put off. You know, there's so many more opportunities and to be able to compete in the Tour de France is not something that I would want to miss. So, yeah, I'm really excited about it. So there's this wonderful thing about cyclists. We can never admit when we don't know something. And it's just like me and ketones. So someone would mention ketones and I'd be all like, yeah, I know what that means. It's basically just an energy supplement. And it is... But as I've dived into a bunch of research from ketones experts, HVMN, it turns out there's a lot more to it. So it sort of works like this. Usually we burn carbs when we cycle, then fat is a backup. Carbs is easy, chuck it straight in the furnace. But for fat to become fuel, we need to turn it into glycerol and fatty acids first. I've got low levels of ketones in my bloodstream as I speak. But what HVMN scientists have done is to work out how to literally make ketones and to put them into a sports drink. They call it HVMN Ketone IQ, and you can drink it during a ride or before a ride. And the idea is that instead of burning carbs, then fat, then ketones when you're cycling, with Ketone IQ, 
your body gets a big helping of energy-rich ketones to use alongside the carbs and fat all at once. So it's kind of three sources of energy, not two. So it's the reason why I've heard about World Tour teams like Jumbo Visma using ketones. They can help you effectively ride faster for, for longer. So if you fancy giving them a try um, and free energy for faster riding, you know, why not? Uh, then visit hvmn.com and use the promo code cyclist at the checkout to get 20% off. So that's hvmn.com and the promo code cyclist for a 20% discount. And also, if you want to learn more about how ketones work, then HVMN's got a brilliant podcast, which is also really worth a listen. It's called Health Via Modern Nutrition with Dr. Black Mansour. And you can find it in all the usual places. Don't forget that the Cyclist Magazine podcast isn't just a podcast. The clue is in the magazine bit. We were a magazine first and we still are. We're a monthly magazine. And right now you can subscribe for three issues for £5. Just check out cyclist.co.uk. And there's also a really quite impressive little offer at the moment that we've got running, which is subscribe and get a sportful hot pack gilet which is a very very light gilet which apparently i know i've got the jacket version and that had 60 kilometers of yarn in it because that's how thin the thread is and this is a gilet version so it's probably you know it hasn't got the arms but it's probably got about 40k in it but they're really really good they're weatherproof windproof all that jazz i can absolutely vouch for it it's a 75 pound free gift for subscribing ladies and gents so check out cyclist.co.uk and subscribe to our lovely magazine now. There's definitely been a lot made with the kind of... Because if you could look at it one way, the Tour de France fam is, is a revisiting of a women's Tour de France, which we had in the 80s, and which sort of fell out of... Ultimately, it fell away because of a lack of interest from sports governing bodies, really. But now it's back, and a lot's been made of that that it suddenly kind of heralds this new dawn for women's cycling where it marks something that has happened that hasn't been happening before. But I sort of look at it from a fan perspective and think, hang on, it's still eight stages and the blokes are racing for 21 stages. And it's a bit like with Paris-Roubaix. Yes, there's a Paris-Roubaix and it came along 125 years after the first one for the men. And then when it did, we should say you won it, and we'll talk about that in a minute. But it's 140-odd kilometers compared to the bloke's 256. It doesn't have the iconic Arenberg Forest in it. So how do you feel about the kind of the way that the sort of health of women's cycling is painted, given the events exist concurrent, like next to each other, but they're actually very different events? Yeah, they are. Um, but I don't think that it's actually... I can understand why, yeah, it's frustrating and it's like, it's it's not a grand tour. It's, we're not there yet. And physically, we are able, of course, to ride for three weeks straight. But we also have to be kind of make sure that the changes that happen are sustainable and they are in line with where women's cycling is at the moment. So currently, our calendar is getting fuller and fuller and fuller. We have 15 riders on the team. And unlike men's cycling, we don't have a roster of 30 where you have a very specific roster for the classics and then a tour team and then even a welter team or whatever. Actually, at the moment, we have the top tier of riders in each team are expected to perform at the classics, then straight into the welter, then straight into Ride London. There's no, there, there isn't kind of, we're not at a point where we have enough strength and depth to be able to field, I would say, a grand tour team. 
at this moment. I think it's really important that we have minimum salaries in the world tour so that in the next five years, absolutely, we will have enough world tour riders and a big enough group of women to choose from to specialize and to sustain that growth. But um, I don't think it should be seen too negatively that the Tour de France is eight days. I do still think it's it's better than nothing and I, I envisage that it will grow and of course we have to push it every year like we don't just be grateful for eight days but like I say step by step is actually not always a negative thing yeah that, that yeah that totally makes sense in terms of you've got to I guess you've got to grow like the whole thing has to grow with the riders with the sport it can't just all kind of happen overnight otherwise yeah you don't have the resources um, to sustain that. But speaking of resources, one thing that just popped into my mind when you're talking then is that that difference between the fact that Trek Segafredo has a long established, once upon a time, quite successful men's team. And more recently, in the last couple of years, Trek women have been absolutely smashing it. So how does that go down at a team camp? When you meet in Calpe in January and you all show up and you say, last year we finished second to SD Works and you guys finished 12th and you only won 19 races to our 33. How does that all play out around the dinner table? Oof, you're savage. Yeah, well, you guys are really good. <laughs> <laughs> and the blokes aren't. Oof, oof. Uh, yeah, there's definitely a bit of um, rivalry there, I would say. We're, we're obviously a team, but yeah, it's quite sweet when we come away on top, definitely. Do you, do you get the kind of backing from the team in terms of, do you feel like there is the the same amount of resources or a similar amount given to your side of things, considering if you looked at it as a business proposition, your kind of star is is meteorically rising, whilst maybe the men's side of the business is a bit more on the wane. Yeah, do you know, I think we do kind of lift each other up, though. It's very much uh, genuinely, like, we are one team. All of our resources are swapped and changed between the teams. We rotate staff between us and senior management and the coaching structure is all available to all of us. Like there's no difference there. And you do feel that when one team is winning, it pushes the other team to win and it's a healthy rivalry. But I get what you're saying <laughs> from a business point of view. Yes, but I think we're, we're just one team and it is just spread evenly. So within the team structure now, we had her on the podcast a few a uh, few weeks ago. You've got a full-time team psychologist, which is the first, I think, team psychologist in the pro peloton, which kind of seems crazy. I mean, you look at a sport like snooker, which isn't even a sport, and they've had psychologists in it for years. What's it, what's it like working with... <laughs> He's brutal. No, but I, just, I, just, <laughs> I agree. But <laughs> Yeah, cycling, cycling is just strangely backward to me sometimes. When I, when I was sitting down and picking over various things um, ahead of today, just these things kind of, kind of pop out and you think... How are we so, yeah, how's it so archaic? But anyway, I'll, I'll try me not, I'll frame it in a different way. Wonderfully, cycling now has its first team psychologist, Elisabetta Borgia. How has having her as a resource changed the way that you have approached cycling? I think it depends on each, each rider. And just having her available, I think, is a mark of respect for mental health and its importance in performance so whether you need to use her or not is irrelevant and the fact that she is on board as a full-time member of staff shows that um, it is regarded as a serious part of performance so I think that's I think it's great obviously it's a long time coming and it should you know it should be normal normalized in every sports team because it's hugely valuable but um yeah she's great because I wonder if there's a kind of 
Is there something else as well to having a team psychologist in cycling? Because there's not just the pressure of going out onto the start line to win, but there's also the pressure of, say, recovering after a crash, or there's the pressure of whether or not you might get a contract next season. And from someone who, yeah, as, as we said, you know, you've had a, an incredibly long career already in cycling. Do you feel like riders, you know, the riders' mental health is well enough looked after? I think ultimately, as individuals, it's it's your responsibility to make sure. It's not that we are part of a, a team that can control everything because we are a big team. We go to lots of different races. It's constantly evolving. It's You're constantly on to the next goal. So it's not like preparing for a one-day event like the Olympics or something in a very controlled. And each rider has to take responsibility and accountability for that aspect of their performance. But it, like I say, just the fact that uh, a team respects it and makes a resource available for a rider to speak about their mental health is important. But yeah, it, it's like you say in cycling, it's such a unique sport in, in, the, in the way that there are so many elements to performance, but also to your mental health within it. Like you say, crashing, uh, team dynamics, uh, contract pressures. There's so much going on that it's um it has to become normalized that you would you would have a team psychologist i think and when you're in your head in those moments in big races and you've got all those things that are the background noise the worries about maybe crashing the worries about someone you you're doing all the work and someone else is just going to come flying past on the line contract things did it in that moment when you're kind of your head down and i'm particularly thinking about Paris bay 2021 where You've gone on an 82-kilometer breakaway, which has got to be up there as one of the longest breakaways in Paris Bay history, period. What do you then start thinking about over those next, I don't know, how long did 82 kilometers take you? Probably two hours or something. That's an awful long time to be on your own. <laughs> what are you thinking about? I know you've got your race radio, but what's going on in Lizzie's head? Do you know, I, I, couldn't, I, I couldn't tell you. Just uh, tunnel vision, which just race mode. And um, I suppose... Post, like coming back from uh, maternity leave, those are the question marks that I have in my head. Will I still have it? Will I still feel comfortable in the peloton? Will I still be able to compartmentalize my brain to not think about the kids or whatever? And it's just, I have it. I don't know. I, I can't tell you exactly what it is, but once there's a number on my back, I'm a very different person to the person around the dinner table the night before. Like I'm not somebody who overanalyzes stuff in day-to-day life anyway like I'm, I'm quite balanced you know I'm, I'm lucky enough not to struggle with anxiety or anything like that so I I find it quite easy to just compartmentalize and when I'm on the bike I'm in race mode and I just I just love being all in on the bike I don't know and when you won a Paris-Roubaix uh, you said that you the reason that you won the race you owed the win to Orla because you were your daughter Orla because you were feeling overwhelmed by the sport and you were thinking about quitting can you tell us a little bit more about this period and what was going on in your head so as soon as I started cycling it was all about you know I started in the track system in British cycling I was talent spotted from school I'm not from a cycling family and so I became a cyclist by accident because I was physically a talented athlete not because I was a cyclist that loved cycling um and in deciding to 
you know, I was desperate to become a mum. That's the only dream I've ever had. I, I, I didn't dream of becoming a professional cyclist. It wasn't part of a cycling family, but becoming a mum was always a huge dream of mine. And I suppose when I met Phil, that became a real possibility. And I decided to just go with an emotional decision rather than what I'd been doing for a lot of years was choosing cycling always what would make me a winner how could I win and it was just like a freedom making an emotional decision when I've been focusing on performance for so long and um, made me realize that actually stepping away from it just riding my bike not for training while I was pregnant but just riding my bike it gave me that love of cycling I fell in love with cycling so yeah, I just feel very grateful that I had that moment to pause and to reflect because that's what maternity leave gave me. It gave me a real understanding of how much I love my job. And if I'd have carried on, then I, I would never have got that perspective. How did your training uh, or the kind of, or your riding change around being pregnant and then just after? So not in terms of, because um, obviously you're, you're taking time off and stopping racing, but how did the wind down from racing and then the training change? And then how did you step that back up again? So I, I guess, it, it, again, it depends on, on each woman and what they need and how their pregnancy is going. Both my pregnancies, I was very, I had a lot of morning sickness, particularly with Shay. I was quite ill until about 24 weeks. So um, riding was quite difficult. But also, I didn't find the adjustment to not training difficult. Like, I just, from, from day one of finding out I was pregnant, it was like, okay, well, what do I do to keep the baby safe? And it's not that exercising or training hard while, while you're pregnant necessarily is bad for the baby, but I just was very risk averse and comfortable with being detrained. Like I was fine with that process. And I know that that can be a very difficult process to go through because for every woman, you gain weight, you feel uncomfortable, you don't recognize yourself in the mirror and you have no control over your body, which, um, can be you know anxiety inducing for a lot of people and I get it but I I just kind of liked the process I don't know I just kind of I kind of felt humbled by the fact that I wasn't in control anymore so I just rode my bike when I felt like it and I didn't I didn't train for a single day of that nine months and there are women that do and they do it very successfully and they keep a lot more fitness than I did and I get it as a professional athlete it you think, oh gosh, how can she admit that? Or, you know, surely my priority was to stay as fit as possible. But my priority wasn't. My priority was to have a healthy pregnancy. And I knew that I'd get back to it afterwards. I just, I was so all in on, on the comeback, knowing that I needed every ounce of motivation and extra kind of energy post the arrival of the baby that I was pretty happy to like take some months taking it slower what's what's harder riding in rainy grim belgium or those first couple of weeks with a newborn baby in the next to me cot oh easily the baby <laughs> easily <laughs> there's nothing like sleep deprivation do you feel in some respects it's kind of changed kind of your mental toughness because so this is one question we at the top of the show we talked about that the, the strangeness about us having a conversation only with female cyclists about um the impact of family but there is a question that has come up a lot and you know this is one that was always leveled at sprinters how has your sprinting changed as a man now you've got a child and i think there was a cavendish interview once which sort of he sort of says you know it's, i'm more aware of what i'm doing i'm 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 more worried about the risk. But what you just said there about it's actually harder having a newborn child, do you feel like actually maybe it's made racing 
sort of easier because maybe you've really drilled those depths of sleep deprivation and fatigue, but you still know you can bounce back and keep going. Totally. Yeah. Like coming to a bike race. Yeah. It's incredible. People give me a massage. People <laughs> make food for me. I'm not cleaning the floor after every meal. I'm not negotiating with my teammates to eat another mouthful. Um, I go to bed when I want. <laughs> There's not another bedtime story. <laughs> it's um, no, it's it's almost like a super compensation when I come to a bike race. Like on, it's great. Like I feel like I'm buzzing when I wake up in the morning because I I am the priority here and I'm really well looked after and it does make a difference definitely yeah and because you know you said that you've always wanted to be a mum and you've said in the past that you needed more than just cycling and cycling isn't your number one priority do you think that you know this approach that you've taken has helped you to be as successful as you have been so not having pro cycling as the be all and end all but having something else as well Yes, certainly at this stage in my career. Yeah, I think there's a time and a place to be all in. And like, it's not, the funny thing is you think in the moments like prior to becoming a world champion where I was really full gas and really kind of hyper-focused, I would say, you assume that that's making you better. And in some ways it might do for a certain amount of time, but what I was doing wasn't sustainable because there's no point winning or being dominant in races if you have nobody to celebrate with when you get home because you haven't committed anything to other relationships in your life or and it's it's almost like like I say an admission as a professional athlete to say no I have another life as well because the expectation is that you should be all in and it should be your total focus because that's the assumption that that's better and that will create a better performance but it's not always the case like I'm performing just as well now like I might not be winning as much but that's because the peloton's changed it's harder to win races now but physically I'm as strong as I've ever been and that's because mentally it's like two sides it's like 50 50 and if you're just 100% physical and your mental side is you know at 25% then it's the same as balancing it a different way that's how I kind of look at it would you say you're somebody who sort of races better when they're angry or better when they're happy? I say this thinking of um, Jens Voigt talking about being in really long breakaways and the thing that made him get through was just telling, just making himself angry. He'd just work himself up into a fury that would keep him going for you know, hundreds of Ks. Are you a happy rider or an angry rider? I'm an emotional rider, definitely, yeah. I hate to admit it, but um, yeah, my husband coaches me and he's just like... <laughs> He just knows me too well. And yeah, some days it's it's quite clear that something has tipped me over the edge and I, I ride really hard or other days. I'll, I'll, it's hard to explain, but it's like I physically cannot push any harder, but it is because of a mental block. It's it's not physical. It is It is my emotional state that has an impact on it, yeah. But I think that's also a good thing. Like on the on the big days where there's a lot of pressure, the bigger the pressure, the bigger the performance usually. So that's a good thing definitely that's a very that's a very channeling Beryl Burton thing to say I think she was she notoriously was somebody that rode quite angry I think and I was (laughs) going to ask you if 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 Orla does grow up to be a professional cyclist and you continue to have an incredibly long career and you find yourself just like Beryl racing against your daughter (laughs) it's the national championships (laughs) it's 2036 and you've been in a break together and you feel that Orla hasn't really been pulling and Orla goes on to win. Are you going to shake Orla's hand afterwards or are you going to snub her like Beryl? 
of course I would shake your hand but that would never happen I can assure you that will not happen uh but yes yeah I love being a teammate (laughs) brilliant well Lizzie, thank you so much uh, for giving up your time, um, especially ahead of, yeah, you're, you're going to race tomorrow. So I think that's, yeah, in, incredibly lovely of you to uh, want to sit down with us because I'm sure there's a lot of eating and resting and just getting your head into that right space um, to happen <laughs> that needs to be happening now. Yeah, I'm on holiday right now. Well, yeah, like you say, actually, of course, this, this, is, this is easy street for you. Yeah, exactly. You're taking up my massage time. Yeah, no, thank, thanks for having me. Thanks, Lizzie. Enjoy your massage. See ya. Cheers. Bye-bye. So, Lizzie Dygan, ladies and gentlemen, who we were speaking to her ahead of the Ride London Classique, because it's got Q-U-E, so you have to say Classique, um, the Ride London Classic, which is a three-stage women's uh, UCI World Tour race. And Lizzie finished third, which is absolutely amazing. She was, I think, third third on the first stage and second on the second stage and then afterwards i read an interview with her on cycling news um other websites are available cyclist.co.uk but i read an interview with her where she'd said that she you know she was waiting to get back to her best form which is just amazing as we were talking about you've had a year out of the workplace but your workplace is basically a 24 7 gym and not only during that time have you not been doing a lot of the thing that is you know, in a lot of the cycling, you've also been doing the thing that is creating a little tiny human being, which is very, very tiring and very time consuming and all the rest of it. Then you come back and you, that's, you know, this is the biggest race that will hold in Britain um, for the women's calendar this year. And you're third. It's amazing. She's an absolute inspiration. I mean, and she, she kind of makes it sound easy, you know? I mean, that, yeah, that, I think that's always the thing, isn't it? When you, when you meet people that are genuinely great at something, then they always make it sound easy. That's I think that's yeah. how you can tell. I feel like with cyclists, there's two ways you can tell if they're good. You have to look at the calves, right? You can't judge a cyclist by calves alone. <laughs> but if they've got quite good definition, they don't have to be big. They just have to have good definition. That's a good mm-hmm. cyclist right there. It's not about the shaved legs and it's not about the chicken drummers. It's just about the definition. And the other one is, do they talk? Do they talk themselves up? Generally, people that you know bang on about having done this ride or that ride in this distance and this top speed, I can hold my hand up and say I'm that person. They they're making up for something. They're making up some shortcomings. So it's that the humbleness of the genius. I think um, that's something yeah, that's personified. This is very humble. Very humble. But we should say actually, you know, being humble ourselves. Thank you very much to Cycle Plan which is a specialist bicycle insurer. They hooked us up with that interview um, with Lizzie and. It's a strange kind of, I'm not sure if they got her because of this, but there's a strange sort of serendipity that a few years ago, Trek Segafredo had something like five or six Madones stolen when they were at stage of, I think, the women's tour in Swansea, which is kind of mad having like pro bikes kind of stolen. Can you imagine like someone going to the pits at Silverstone and like nicking a couple of tyres from like the McLaren car. <laughs> Can you imagine the chaos that would unfold? It is, yeah, it's kind of bananas, but obviously it is something that's all, you know, it's happened to all of us. And except for me, actually, ha, I've never had a bike stolen. Now I'm going to get one nicked. I'm absolutely I would say gonna... touch, touch the wood because you don't want to jinx that. I don't want to jinx that and I just have. So I'm going to have to stricken that for the record. But Emma, you've, you've had a bike stolen. Um, how I did have. it feel? Oh, it was awful. I had my um, fixie stolen in London and it was just, oh, it was so depressing, if I'm honest. <laughs> I, like, I, was, I came down, it was in my, like, outside my flat in the bike park area, came down with my helmet on, ready to ride it. I was really buzzed to go. 
And um, yeah, it just wasn't there. And I couldn't really understand why. And I spent, I spent a good amount of time searching for it, just checking all the other bikes and thinking I was going mad. <laughs> finally, um, it kind of settled in. It sunk in that, yeah, it was gone. And in its place was a really rickety old rally. And that was unlocked. It was all very confusing. Um, but yeah, so yeah, it was sad. It was sad. That is very sad. That is very sad. Well, sometimes the weird thing I think about just objects in general, but particularly bikes, it's not actually about the shiniest bike or the nicest bike or the fastest bike. It's just the one that you've ridden the most. And I don't know if you've ever read this book. It's called The Third Policeman by an Irish author whose pseudonym was Finn McCall. Anyway, that's by the by. The point is in this book, it describes how as cyclists, you're sitting on your bike and your saddle and every single little bump means that you're hitting the bike and the bike's hitting you and you're exchanging atoms. And so the more you ride a bicycle, the more the bicycle becomes a physical part of you as you give it your Mm. atoms and you become a physical part of your bicycle. And I would suggest that's why it hurts so much to have your fixie stolen. Yeah, I think a piece of you, a physical scientific piece of you went that day. I also think because you have, I had a lot of fun on my fixie. Yes. And I feel like we had great rapport. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, and also because I'd like attached the brakes with hair ties and everything like it was a very you know hodgepodge or whatever people call it um, and that's why also I really liked it and that's why I thought no one would steal it but alas how wrong I was I was going to say that's why the bicycle thief ended up in hospital <laughs> don't say that well bad wow. sad sight. well I don't know should we pity the bicycle thief that's a whole other question there's a whole, whole other, other question um but I will say one thing and then we'll then we'll wrap this up but a really good piece of advice that came from an actual bicycle thief that we interviewed in cyclist once upon a time along the lines of how do you not get your bike nicked and he also pointed out actually that this may explain the rally that was in place of your bike that you kind of nick a bike just any bike and then you cycle that bike to a nice bike that you do want to steal and then you leave it's kind of like having a burner phone you leave your burner bike there and then you take that nice bike and then you take that nice bike back because you're nicking several bikes a day you take it back to a lockup somewhere and then you have to go again so then you have to have find another crap bike not that that rally was a crap bike because all bikes wonderful but then you get this uh, another burner bike and so kind of the cycle sort of continues but he said the thing that thieves don't want to see are multiple locks because the thing a thief doesn't want to do is spend more time on your bike than somebody else's bike they'll always try and nick the bike that's that's fastest to nick so that doesn't necessarily even mean the best lock what it can mean is you could have two kind of average locks and that would take longer than one really mega lock so multiple locks that's that's my advice kids multiple locks Good advice. I'm going to take that one. And I think, you know, if Trek Segafredo applied that to their situation, <laughs> that, that I, you know, it might work. Save yourself 60 grand. Bet that wasn't insured by Cycle Plan, was it? They're not backing up 60 grand's worth of Madones. Goodness. Anyway, thanks, Cycle Plan. Mm-hmm.